Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up later on the program, Jill Savitt, president and CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights right here in Atlanta, joins the program. Now, despite being closed for now, Savitt says now more than ever, the center is needed. We're going to have to put together a system for truth and reconciliation in this country. The center could play a huge role in that. That conversation coming up in just a moment. In other news, Georgia continues to see an increase in daily confirmed COVID-19 cases. It's likely the state will surpass 100,000 this week. Now, at this hour, there are 95,616 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide reported to be 2,860. And 11,775 people are hospitalized. And of that number, more than 2,600 are ICU admissions. That, of course, according to the Georgia Department of Health. Now, in related news starting today, MARTA will hand out 2 million face masks at its rail and bus stations. However, officials did stop short of requiring riders to wear the mask in order to board. Employees will hand out masks from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. on weekdays. The program may expand to nights and weekends based on demand. And also, the Atlanta Police Department is offering a $10,000 reward to help solve the murder of 8-year-old Sequoia Turner. Now, she was shot while riding in a car in the area of University Avenue and I-75 and 85 Saturday night. Now, this was right across the street from the Wendy's location where Rashard Brooks was killed during an altercation with Atlanta police. The little girl's killing was part of a violent holiday weekend across metro Atlanta. Authorities report more than 20 people were shot and three were fatal. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms addressed the weekend's gun violence last night. Well, now we're demanding action for Sequoia Turner and for all of the other people who were shot in Atlanta last night and over the past few weeks because the reality is this. These aren't police officers shooting people on the streets of Atlanta. These are members of the community. As for the community, a local activist called Lady A, whose group is advocating for a Richard Brooks Peace Center, released a video statement separating the group from the shooters. We too mourn the loss of the young life gone too soon. And we ask for the community's prayer and support for all families impacted by the shooting at this time. To the family, we stand with you and are here for you. We wish to make clear that no one from our group was involved in any way whatsoever in the shooting that took place and the incident that did not take place at the site of the memorial. It would be misinformation to state otherwise. And so now there still are a lot 
of questions, a lot of unanswered questions. And joining me now is Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore. President Moore, thank you for taking the time. I always appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You tweeted the killing of the eight-year-old girl and the multiple shootings, among other atrocities that occurred last night, this morning, are heartbreaking, leaving me angry. It's unacceptable, and the message must be sent that it will not be allowed to continue. So, President Moore, from your viewpoint, how will this message be sent or should be sent? Well, you know, I'm certainly calling on the mayor and the police chief particularly to uh, send a clear message that it will not be tolerated and a clear plan of action on how we're going to bring peace uh, back to the city. What happened on July 4th and the early morning of July 5th should not be repeated and even a little bit last night in terms of killing. For some reason, we're on a shooting um, spree and violence uh, across the city, protests that are turning into things that are not protests. Uh, but are actually assaults on police officers and assault on property and others, even the communities that are, are around it. So there, we, we need a level of calm to come across the city very quickly. Have you spoken with the family of Sequoia Turner? I have not. I did not get the notice and time enough to go down to the press conference. Uh, I am asking for contact information, and I certainly want to reach out. Uh, that was the start of a very difficult uh, 4th of July to get that call. Uh, Council Member Shepard, who represents that district, mm-hmm. called me and said, I have some bad news. And of course, I'd had no idea what would come after that statement. And my heart's been broken ever since. Let's back up a little bit, because do the authorities know this armed group? And from what we understand, this armed group had been in this area for a long time. They had some illegal barricades up. To your knowledge, was this supposed to be some type of neighborhood protection group? Were they protesters that turned into this protection group? Yeah, I have no idea specifically who they encountered. Uh, I've been going to the site from the time Rashad Brooks had died, and over time it has evolved. What I learned is there are different factions and different groups that hang in and around there. I'm not quite sure who uh, was whether it was a group I had talked with or others that had blocked off the road and actually uh, did this shooting. So it's kind of hard to pin that on. And, you know, we'll have to see through the investigation if there's some video from the um, liquor store or other that might give us some more indication on who they are. But I do know that the daytime crowd and the nighttime crowd are sometimes different crowds. Mm-hmm. And even during the day, there may be different people who are in and around that site. The times that you've been over in that area, have you witnessed any armed groups out there? Have you seen people with weapons? Unfortunately, yes. I I did go uh, one time when they were blocking off the road and they did have long guns. They had pistols. uh, So they were armed and citizens can be armed in the state of Georgia. So they did have arms and they did not know who I was as a council president that time that I was out there. So I I observed and it was willy nilly. They would let some people through and others, they make them turn around. They really commanded the street. Uh, And then my last visit, I did see an arm, um, some weapons. Well, the fact that this group or these groups were policing, so to speak, that area and making folks turn around. Is that not a violation of law? 
Well, yes, and the city and shut it down. They did get the street back open. Council Member Shepard, along with members of the community, were concerned because they couldn't get to and from their homes and went out and got them to get out of the street to block, you know, put the blockade. The city removed uh, their barriers. And for a while there, it was peaceful. And then I think the last interaction I had was on a Thursday because Council Member Shepard was um, not able to go out. She asked me to go out to talk with them about removing the cars and that the city was going to shut off access. Uh, and it went well in the beginning. And again, there's more than one group. And then it, all of it fell apart. <laughs> and so we decided that, you know, we could no longer uh, negotiate, I guess, for the better word, uh, with them. So the group that you spoke with, that was, well, take me through that conversation. Was it positive? Well, when I got there, the community people, and this was mostly led by Council Member Shepard and, and the community. I was just there in support. When I got there, they had already told them that they needed to move the cars if the city was going to remove the barricades. And uh, the group, that the young ladies mostly that they were talking to, Everything was fine. They understood. It was great. Some of the young men who were out there, however, weren't aware of that. When they found out that was going on, they got highly upset and argumentative because they felt that they had been giving and giving. They said, you know, they asked us to get out of the road. We did that. They asked us to do this. We did that. We're not getting anything in return. And it got very uh, aggressive and, and hostile. And the young ladies was like, hey, let us deal with them. We'll talk with them. We'll smooth it over. And myself and the two community people that were there, we went ahead and we left. Um, I decided at that point, I told Ms. Shepard that uh, it, it had all fallen apart. And I think she had a subsequent uh, teleconference with Lady A, uh, mm -hmm. as you referenced earlier, and some other people. And it, it just, the communication fell apart. And then, of course, we know what happened on Saturday. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has weighed in and some tweets. Have you been able to read some of the governor's tweets? No, I haven't. What has he said? Well, uh, there was one tweet where he said, in Georgia, we stand against violence and with law enforcement, rest assured these criminals will be held accountable for their destructive and dangerous behavior. But there was also another tweet where the governor had indicated that if local officials couldn't take care of it, then perhaps it would be left up to him in a sense. Is it time for the city of Atlanta and the state to come together to try to figure out how to deal with if the issue is about armed citizens groups wanting to protect their community, if that's what it is, is it time then for a collaborative approach or do you think this is something the city of Atlanta can handle? Well, the mayor made it clear at the press conference last night that it was going to be shut down. And when I uh, sent a text on Saturday once I heard about it to the chief. He told me it would. And as we speak, I understand right before this interview that they are now dismantling uh, the Peace Center or memorial site at Wendy. So that is being shut down. I do think the city can handle uh, its issues. And I want to be fair to the governor. Here's his exact, the second tweet, quote, this recent trend of lawlessness is outrageous and unacceptable. Georgians, including those in uniform, need to be protected from crime and violence while we stand ready to assist local leaders in restoring peace and maintaining order. We won't hesitate to take action without them. Close quote. 
Well, you know, if he feels that he needs to weigh in, and some citizens, uh, frankly, on social media have asked that he weighed in, but I will uh, agree with him in terms of assault on uh, the police. And the other thing that I saw, because I was up to four in the morning, people were shooting me videos, contacting me in all kinds of ways, and there were a couple things that I saw that really upset me. At the Zone 3 police precinct, about midnight, there was a protest, Mm -hmm. or it was called a protest. But what I saw was more than that. They were shooting fireworks at police officers. And all I saw was police officers trying to, you know, knock the spray of the the fireworks off of them. And they had to stand there and take it. And then as I watched the video, I kept seeing this little yellow light, not yellow, but green light squiggling around. And then I realized that they had lasers and they were pointing these lasers specifically in the eyes of officers. Now, you know a laser can blind you, and a laser can give you permanent eye damage. And so I was very, very upset to see that, and the officers were standing there taking it. Many of them had to turn their backs uh, to be able to keep it out of their eyes, which made them vulnerable to things that they were throwing. So, you know, I do believe that people can protest, and I, and I have they have a right to do that, but what they don't have a right to do is assault an officer, because you can take the police officer out of it, it's another human being that you're assaulting. Do you have concerns, and I want to go back to the actions that can help bring about a solution, because do you have concerns that this is also being politicized? I'm looking at a tweet now from Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler, quote, I'm also furious. I'm furious that elected officials with a radical agenda have decided to appease violent criminals instead of protecting the public. And I'm furious that these leaders, and she put those in quotation marks, refuse to support law enforcement at a time when they need it most. And that's the beginning of a series of tweets. Does this help, President Moore? Of course Moore? it doesn't help. You know, my, my, my own little quote I've said for many years is when politics is at play, it's the people that suffer. Uh, but politics is going to find its way into everything. And uh, unfortunately, we're in an election year and everybody's going to find their way to make their voice heard, to make their statement. And so this is power for the course, but I hope that we can get beyond the politics and really work on addressing the issues that we have. You started our conversation talking about the message that needs to be sent, but you also said a plan that needs to be adopted. What should that plan look like? Will that come from the mayor alone and the police department? Will it come from you all? Will legislation have to be passed? What's that plan look like? Well, I certainly am calling on the mayor and the police chief to come up with that plan and to share it with the public because citizens are um, uneasy about what's going on, as you have read from uh, other elected officials. And so that plan, to me, has a lot of elements to it, but just simply, we need to make sure that we make it clear what we will and will not accept from protesters. And what the consequences will be if the protest goes from exercising your constitutional rights to assaulting police officers, damaging property, and causing uh, mayhem in the city. We just need to make it very clear with people, and then we need to follow through on that. Let's talk about the officers for a moment. Reports are morale is low. Obviously, from the viewpoint of police unions, and associations that are proponents of the police department in terms of being advocates for their well-being and their rights. 
Where do you see that bridging that gap between those organizations and the city? Well, I mean, that one is a difficult one. I believe not only morale is low, morale is non-existent. There is no morale. It started very high with a great uh, pay raise, uh, 30% that, that was given to police officers because we needed to stem the tide of losing officers. And now the whole public narrative, of course, has now shifted with George Floyd and following Rashad Brooks here in the city of Atlanta and then the culmination of years of other uh, things. And so their morale is pretty low, uh, particularly they're not happy as they are telling me with uh, not getting due process um, in terms of firings, certainly uh, some of the actions of the DA and arresting people and they're uneasy. So those are issues that have to be dealt with from the source in which some of the problems have come up in order to bring their morale up. I think, again, that's where a clear message needs to be sent so they understand what the rules of engagement are as they are out there policing. And maybe that will help to bring their morale up and then they want support. Uh, we need to understand and citizens need to understand that there are officers that do things that are wrong. First, I want the officers to be the first in line to say that our brothers and sisters who are officers have done something wrong. Some of them are wrong. Some of them don't do right and that they need to report them. But then we also need to recognize there's a lot of officers out there that do good. And I know them and I know that what they've done in the community. And so we've got to not put a broad brush over all police officers and paint them as bad light because when... Uh, there are people who are killed when someone breaks in someone's house, when there's mayhem. Who are you going to call? You're going to call the police. Moving forward, what do you propose that the city council do getting started this week or continuing with whatever initiatives y'all have already started in order to, to get to some progress here? Well, and that's the thing. I know that the council is going to be dealing with this um amendment to the budget that Mr. Brown is going to put on, which, you know, I think will only be another distraction of another couple of weeks of debating that and whether it passes or not, which I really wish would have been energy spent towards coming up with some real reforms. But frankly, I think the first, the council has to come up with a framework on how they're going to go about getting that done, that work done. Right now, uh, the mayor has a use of force task force that's working. I think she just had an administrative order for another group. So most of it's being driven by the executive branch. And so right now I would encourage the council to get with the mayor, figure out what the council wants to do, what the mayor's doing, how we can do it together. And if not together, what is our plan of action? What is the strategy we're gonna use around tackling this issue uh, of reform. People want to see some action. And there are a lot of things that could happen that um, probably need work in and of themselves. And the council is going to have to come up with a framework to do that. I want to go back to Councilmember Brown for a moment. Are you referring to the People's Uprising Task Force? Yeah. Well, not just the task force, mm -hmm. um, but I'm talking about an amendment to the budget. There was a resolution passed uh, when we had our last meeting during the budget. And then there was an amendment to fund that, which would take $73 million out of the $217 million in the police budget mm -hmm. and sort of hold it until there were some action and some moving forward on police reform issues. 
that amendment was voted down narrowly mm-hmm. by one vote, eight to seven. And I understand Mr. Brown today at the council meeting will be reintroducing that amendment. You call that a distraction? Well, I believe it's become a distraction because it already pa- did not pass. Um, and I'm not sure about how support will go before. And we'll find ourselves, uh, the council will find itself debating that and spending a lot of time and having a lot of public comment about that when we could take that time to start moving towards mm-hmm. some of the reforms that and putting that energy in the reforms that we want to see. And finally, President Moore, will you go back out to the Windy site and location and speak to the community? Uh, well, as I told you, it's now being dismantled. I did drive by there um, on that Friday before the uh, shooting on Saturday. I, I don't have any reason to go back out to the site. Uh, but if, you know, Council Member Shepard asks for my support to come out, I'll be out there. Or if I can find that I can be productive and helpful in it. How would you assess the council's ability to get things done, working with each other, and then the relationship with the mayor right now? Well, I think that the council, one thing, this COVID-19 situation where we're all remote makes it very difficult. So, you know, you might have small groups of people who talk or they're calling each other individually on the phone. So it's difficult for a collective effort. That's why I said we need to come up with a strategy where the council can come together and do work sessions or whatever so we can all have an opportunity to talk and share ideas. And and the same with the mayor's office. I think the mayor's office does need to open up, uh, particularly these task force and other groups that she's working on to come up with police reform to make sure that the council is well represented and involved in it. Because at the end of the day, the council is the one that has to approve any policy recommendations. What's your relationship like with Mayor Bottoms? Well, I mean, I think it's a respectful one. I don't have a lot of contact with her, but, I, you know, when I need to, I will reach out by text or phone. Or we have had, uh, which were successful, but have ended uh, weekly calls with the mayor, with the council, and that, I think, was helpful. So those calls have have ceased? Well, at our last call that she had, she informed us that that would be the last call that we would have, that she would give her reports through the committee. She felt that a lot of the information she was sharing was already being shared to the council through committees. And so that was the last call. Well, President Moore, in all your years on the council and now in a leadership role, what do you make of that? Is that helpful for you all as a collective government body to have that type of relationship? Well, I think that it could be better. And I will say that, and I believe most council members would agree. They may not say it, but agree that the communication is one of the lacking things that I see at City Hall right now and the ability to communicate with each other and and find a way to work with each other. And that's why I'm saying, I think as we deal with this police reform, we can't be doing it in silos. Uh, We need to be doing it together. So you have a council member who has a a task force and then the mayor has her task force. We need to come together and work on that. Or either if not, the council needs to definitely deal with some of the issues on their own. Because at the end of the day, the policymakers of the city are the city council. And finally, the feedback that you receive in your office and through your constituents from the community the last few weeks, even the last few hours maybe, What's that been like? What's their message been to you? 
it's been varied. It's been defund the police um, to don't defund the police. So there is certainly a division and thought out there in the community. Uh, but people that I know, uh, most of them that are in the city are, are wary of our defunding the police. People want us to find a way. I think there's one way to do both. You can support the police as well as look at reforms to make it better. And I think there's just combination of both of those things is what we need to find ourselves doing. It won't satisfy everyone and everything that they want, but it certainly will get us in a place where we can move forward. Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Going to go back a little bit. Eight years ago, in fact, June 27, 2012, it was a groundbreaking ceremony for what would be the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Then, two years later, on June 23rd, the center opened. The history of our city and our country is based on civil and human rights. So we welcome the world to Atlanta, Georgia. We welcome the world to come to this Center for Civil and Human Rights to learn. From this day forward, let the National Center for Civil and Human Rights stand as a deep, abiding, and personal thank you to individuals known and unknown that helped, that gave a hand, so that their work and sacrifice is never, ever taken for granted. When I went through it the first time, I was overwhelmed. And then I realized that we really had accomplished what we were trying to do, which is, which is to say that no one person owns this. Um, this history is a history of thousands of people, and we tell hundreds of those stories. You have now uh, three incredible destinations with the aquarium, the world of Coca-Cola, and now with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. I mean, imagine the millions of people that will come to Atlanta and come to Atlanta just to see these three things. And that was then Atlanta City Council President Cesar Mitchell. You also heard from then Georgia U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson, then Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, his predecessor, the Honorable Shirley Franklin, all talking about the Center for Civil and Human Rights on opening day, June 23rd, 2014. I know because I was there. It's more than just what some people may say it's a museum, but it's more than that. The center also has a purpose to empower and facilitate ongoing dialogue about a number of topics, health and human rights, women's rights, issues affecting the LGBT community, and global issues such as human and sex trafficking. And perhaps more than any time in its existence, 
as this nation's experiencing a reckoning and awakening regarding race and racism, the center is needed. But the center is also closed. So we'll talk all about that. Joining me now is Jill Savitt, president and CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, of course, located right here in downtown Atlanta. Jill, it's been a while. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Rose. Great to be here. Eight years. Wow. I remember like it was yesterday, <laughs> the groundbreaking. I remember just all the buzz about this center and what it would be and what it should be and what it could be. And, you know, the visionary behind it, the late Mrs. Lowry, who was really, really a proponent of this. What did you know about what this center was supposed to be back then, even before you came to Atlanta? Well, actually, I was at the groundbreaking and I was at the opening because I got involved in the center uh, with the center in 2010. Mm -hmm. I curated the human rights exhibit on the top floor about global human rights. So I have been just a a fan of this idea since the moment I got a call from Doug Shipman a decade ago Mm -hmm. saying, we're opening up this museum and would you like to be involved? I was, um, my background is in genocide prevention, global contemporary genocide prevention. So I was at the U.S. Holocaust Museum and I ran a program there on contemporary genocide prevention. And so I had a, a sort of a bird's eye look at the world about the most serious human rights abuses around the world. And I have long thought that the center could be something miraculous, something sacred in terms of putting human and civil rights at the forefront of our of our minds. When someone says to you, well, Jill, what is the National Center for Civil and Human Rights? What is your mission? What's the vision for this organization? We're really about helping people understand the past to see how it's relevant today and be inspired by the stories of human rights defenders in history and now so that people can tap their own power mm-hmm. to change the world, to, be, to engage in civic life, to become empowered, to see a problem and understand how to address it based on what we know from all the work that has come before, because it's very instructive. Well, we're in a space and a time right now where the center, as I mentioned, is probably the place or one of the places where you can have that conversation, have that dialogue, bring people together, but you're also closed due due to the pandemic. What's this been like for you all? You know, it's heartbreaking because we believe in the power of that place. It's not just that it's a building, it's got a story and people, their mind shifts when they come in and it's easier in some ways to have the conversation because you can sound like a tuning fork when you go through the exhibitions and it puts everyone in a similar space Mm -hmm. with a working set of facts to have a discussion. But I think what's most important, so I became the CEO a little more than a year ago and the big vision that we have mapped out over the past year is how do you change this place from an Atlanta attraction Mm -hmm. to a cultural institution? That's been our big challenge and that's how we're trying to steer this because we do do a lot of other things beyond just having exhibits that visitors come to see. We do stage conversations, we have performances, we do some research, we do some advocacy on human trafficking, on LGBTQ issues. So how do you take a place that is seen as one thing, really a museum, and transform it to an institution that has this unbelievable museum as part of it 
but does an array, array of other things. Um, and so that, that was a useful backdrop to have in mind because when COVID hits, that's exactly what we needed to be. Mm -hmm. the, the building itself wasn't where our power comes from. It's the mission and the values. And so we have been at first tap dancing and now we're in our rhythm to provide that kind of um, forum platform to discuss these issues, even if our building is closed. But the building is so important when it comes to one of your revenue streams. That is true. So <laughs> yeah. how are you all going to make a decision? And unfortunately, right now we're seeing these numbers increase as it relates to COVID-19. Has there been conversations about could we have a soft opening? Could we open by appointment? As there, yeah. Have you all had conversations about how you should oh, do yeah. that? Yeah, we have, and we're watching all our sister institutions in town and what they're doing. A lot of them with outdoor space have opened sooner, and now they're opening. They Many have opened their indoor space, and we're watching. I mean, so I'll just give you the facts really bluntly. Uh, we are losing about right now, which would be our busiest season, about $350,000 a month in lost revenue. So it's been about a million since we've been closed. We rely on that revenue, um, the tickets, the renting out our space to other organizations and our stores, about 60% of our budget. And we were in the process of shifting that to revenue from trainings that we do on DEI issues, diversity, equity, and inclusion, trainings for law enforcement, trainings on how to do advocacy. We were shifting our model, but we hadn't quite gotten to the point where that was robust. So what we've been doing is working very quickly to offer those things more quickly and um, to raise money from our very generous supporters who want to see the center not only survive but thrive and they have stepped in we launched something called the campaign for equal dignity mm -hmm. and that's you can go to equaldignity.org it's weekly programs conversations weekly actions a bunch of resources and coming soon training but on your other question, we have picked a date that we would like to open in late July. We've laid an operational plan down, but we're keeping an eye on those numbers because the truth is when we open our doors, we will start to lose money. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but when you, hot, when you put the full force of all that staff who are required, many of whom are furloughed right now, hmm. So we have the PPP money from the federal government. So we've been able to patch it together. Um, it, if 4,000 people come, great. If four people come, not so great. It takes the same amount of, it costs the same to open. And so if people aren't coming, we're not getting that revenue, but we're spending all the money to open. Hmm. So it's a tricky spot we're in. The voice you hear is Jill Savitt, president and CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. You're right. Someone listening says, wow, you all open, but you'll be losing money. So in the meantime, in, in your role as president and, and CEO, are you having to also reach out and try to get more funding than on the normal? What will be your normal workload? You know, for instance, the Coca-Cola Foundation is a longtime supporter of the center. And when we mapped out this plan for a campaign for equal dignity, and we said, we're gonna go online with it, and this is what we're gonna offer, and this is who we're gonna reach, and we're gonna teach history and its relevance today, and all of that, they came through with a very generous grant. Mm 
that allowed us to do that work and sustain ourselves. Um, we're, we've long done for the past three years, a law enforcement training seminar for captains to chiefs. And it looks at the early warning signs of mass, mass atrocity crimes based on groups for their identity. And it's unbelievably popular. It's captains to chiefs of police forces. They come to the center for two days and we do really intensive training with them. We now have a funder who's interested in helping us put that online. If we can offer it online, then that's a, a, that's a source of revenue. So we are doing things we always wanted to do, but reprioritizing the order that we're doing them in with an eye toward what, can, what services can we offer, what opportunities can we offer that will attract funds. We have a bunch of schools approaching us right now, as you can imagine, Black At, name the private school. I don't know if people have looked at this Instagram feed of the experience of black students at private schools and we're learning a lot of what was going on for them and it's not good. Yes, so we're working people, on that segment uh, as, as we all have this conversation, yes. Yeah, so those schools are saying, what can we do? We, we don't want to be in this situation. We don't want students to feel like they don't belong in our institutions which is exactly what they feel, and how do we create a culture of inclusiveness and belonging? And so they're turning to us as a resource. And so that's another opportunity for us to give our services to people um, in different ways than we have before. And so Jill, because we're all in this space of the pandemic, are you all adjusting or modifying your strategic plan at all? Because as what many people say, this pandemic it's gonna change a lot in our daily lives, whether it's good or bad and moving forward. I don't know if we'll ever get back to whatever the normal was. So are you all looking at in your strategic plan, we need to go in and modify that because things are changing. Yeah, I think they were things that were always in our strategic plan, <clears throat> but we were really focused on things we could do in the building. So now we have to think in a new way. If the building isn't available to us, how can we do these things differently? And I, I think a, you were saying it uh, earlier, a huge role for the center is this idea of conversations. And there is, you use the word reckoning, and I think that's right. There is a national reckoning right now about our history that has not been told accurately in schools, in popular imagination, in movies. And we need to come to terms with our history from enslavement, well, from Native Americans mm -hmm. forward about what has really happened to people? What are the legacies of those human rights violations? How do they manifest today? And how are we gonna move forward? And I said earlier, my background is on mass atrocity crime prevention. Mm -hmm. And I have worked with other countries around the world in the aftermath of their traumas about how they reconcile that. And that's where America's going. And we're gonna to have to put together a system for truth and reconciliation in this country and I think the center could play a huge role in that, about the conversations that you need to have to move forward in a fundamentally different way. I want to take that and focus on something because recently you all had a virtual discussion and it was titled, How Not to Raise a Racist. When you all are planning, whether it's online or, or in, you know, in person at, at the center, when you all are planning these forums and these, these conversations, who are you all working with to make sure you're guiding the conversation or the dialogue or, or, the, or the conversations you present? 
You're bringing in the right folks. But how do you all make sure you, you have the right partners, you have the right people that you're bringing in? Yeah, we, we are by training curators. And, you know, it's not so different than I'm sure what you and your team do. Uh, we have the same approach. We're curators. We look for, well, we look for differing viewpoints because to have, um, we recently did um, a, a program on what does defund the police really mean? Mm -hmm. And so you need to have a range of voices. So we had someone who was abolished. We had someone who was reform and we had someone who was defund because you want you want people to have a full array of views and come to their own opinion. Mm -hmm. We want people to think critically and we want them to think about how they might roll up their sleeves and participate in our civic life. So that is always a focus for us, is giving people information they need that they can think critically and then act on that information. And so we, we vet people just by talking to them. We call them up, we look at their materials, we look on their website, we see what their point of view is, we see what they base their research and information on, their methodology. And then we, we seek voices that are popular, that can explain this, but not like a lecture. Mm -hmm. So we look for people who, can, who are good communicators and then we invite them on. Well, and is there a, a demographic that you all would like to reach that maybe you, you realize we need to do a better job of? Younger folks, millennials, you all are interactive. How important is that in reaching you know, a younger uh, demographic to get them involved in, in the center? Well, I think one of the ways that I see younger people today, and I have a son who's 20, so I feel like have some experience of getting through to someone <laughs> that age and how you have to do it. Um, I'm sometimes successful, sometimes not, but we'd like to have, and we set a goal for ourselves of having someone with lived experience mm -hmm. because we have found in our museum that telling a story from a personal point of view is more likely to have someone generate empathy, to understand, to have compassion, that that experience. So on the policing program, the one about defunding, we had one activist, an Atlanta activist, who talked about seeing his dad beaten up when he was six years old, beaten up by the police. Mm. And it shaped his worldview. And I think we sometimes forget that, that people's lived experience shapes how they approach any particular issue. And so that's always a priority for us, just like in the center itself, we have a real human storytelling focus. So that's one of the things that I think gets to that millennial Gen Z audience because they understand authenticity. You put out a statement as it relates to what's been taking place right. in our nation, but you all tend to stay away or do you stay away from too much politics? And how it's, do you balance that? So it's an interesting dynamic because I think the center appeals to a broad base because we're not seen as political. We're primarily an education organization. I, the way I look at it and what my team talks about is we are advocates for advocacy. Mm -hmm. We believe people should be involved in the political process. We believe everyone has a role because of their citizenship. They need to get involved, that they can't be silent. That is not an option. And so how do we lift up that idea of civic participation, of becoming involved? And what we like to do is then spotlight fantastic advocacy groups and let them tell the story. So we kind of set the table and make that space for people to talk about 
how you change the world around you. How is that done tactically, technique wise? How, how do you get something done? Because that's the story we tell. We tell the story of young people who secured voting rights for black Americans, you know, that, and how they did it. And it, it's not just one hashtag or one march, though those are very valuable and powerful tools as we're seeing in our world right now. But um, I'm gonna borrow something from the columnist, David Brooks. He was saying that in a column over the weekend that what happens next is the hard work. And he used this line, it's more C-SPAN than Instagram. And that's true. You can raise the issue and create the opening. And that's what these phenomenal activists are doing right now. But then what? How do you actually make the change in policy and make it endure? And so that, that's also what we're interested in. If you all do decide to reopen and you can adjust and modify the number of people who are coming in, what about exhibits? Because as you know, you can't social distance when you're moving exhibits in and out. Will y'all have to put that on hold for a while? And, and what does that yeah, look like I in mean, the future? Our permanent exhibits are pretty set mm -hmm. and people can go through those. I mean, we're going to have time tickets. Only a certain number of people can come in the building. That's envisioned by this plan. Hand washing statements, regular cleanings. We're going to be mask mandatory. Mm -hmm. And we think that's important. So if someone doesn't want to come in, uh, if someone doesn't want to wear a mask, we're going to ask them to reschedule their visit for another time. Um, there's a square foot rule of thumb that a person for a certain amount of square feet. We're also only going to have one path through the museum. We're going to have markings on the floor. Um, our signature experience is our lunch counter experience. Absolutely. And we're now going to re-rig it so people can use their own device and listen on their own headphones and have as close approximation to that unbelievable experience because that's part of coming to the center is being moved in that visceral way. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at everything we do and tweaking it so that people can have that experience as much as we can possibly make it for them. And finally, Jill, I believe you are the center's third CEO and president. As you look back to when you accepted the position and then now and then in the future, how do you assess, you know, what the center has been able to do and then also under your leadership? I didn't know that that nimbleness was going to be such a big feature of this job. Um, you know, I came in with these ideas from having been a fan of the center for so long. So I feel really good about that. I think this shift from attraction to institution is critical for us. Um, and, you know, I many days, despite everything, I wake up very hopeful because while it's painful and frustrating right now, we have a chance to reimagine our country. And I think there are so many people of goodwill who want to reimagine our country. And our staff feels very privileged to be at an institution that can play a big role in that. Um, and so I feel hopeful about it and I think we're well poised to do it. In the long run, but you have concerns about funding and keeping and your funding mechanisms that you all are, are implementing. You worry about funding and sustainability and keeping this center open for the long run. Yeah, that, that keeps me up at night. That's, that's one of the things. But I, I know that the city of Atlanta and the donors in Atlanta believe in this center. And you know, I, I moved here a year ago and I have drunk the Atlanta Kool-Aid. I am such a booster now for this city. 
and Richard Brooks and some of the violence that was seen at protests. It's a gut punch. And, you know, we have to change our script in the tour that we give because Atlanta was always the city too busy to hate where violence never erupted, where you didn't see these things. And I believe Atlanta's view of itself got shaken recently, mm -hmm. but I also believe that Atlanta can lead the way in how you address it. We are the birthplace of civil rights. We are the hometown of Dr. Martin Luther King. We have people in the power structure who are both black and white, who are of goodwill. They just need to come together and figure it out. And they can, and I believe they will. And so having this kind of center in this city at this moment is essential. And I think a lot of donors around town and people who care about this city are know that the center is a place that they can invest and that will be a just a good long-term investment for our city. Jill Savitt, President and CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And Jill, for our listeners again, as of right now, that proposed date, that soft reopening for the center is when? It's in uh, the 20s of July, but people should go to civilandhumanrights.org, our website for the latest. We, we put up there when we're opening and um, we are contemplating a soft launch. So if you're a member of the center, which I think everyone should of course be, you can get a membership online at our website. We'll be opening to our members first to show them and kind of test out how we're planning to, what our new operational plan is. Um, and then if we do open, if those numbers, you know, I'm really worried about these spikes. We, I, I don't want to put my staff at risk and we do not want to be any kind of vector for this pandemic. Sure. And so we're keeping a real close eye on that. But if we can open, we desperately want to open because we know that people will feel a great deal of comfort and inspiration by coming to the center. So keep, keep a lookout on our website. Jill, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.